Hi, I'm Tim Sonova, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck, a podcast about, well, that. On this episode, I'm again joined by podcasting's favorite co-host, Lauren Ruffin, when I'm quite certain she will ask me just what I was thinking when I set out to record an entire series of episodes with white guys in leadership roles whose companies are engaged in understanding how racism and oppression are at play in their organizations and the work they do. This is the preamble episode to that very series, White Men and the Journey Towards Anti-Racism. What follows are 12 episodes where I interview everyone from someone choreographing movement on military-grade robots to the guy who helped invent the cookie dough that goes into Ben and Jerry's iconic cookie dough ice cream, to a whole host of guys engaged in different and fascinating work. I talk with them and unpack how their professional work currently intersects with their personal work and journey towards understanding how racism and oppression are built into their organizations and how, as white guys, they're trying to address it. So let's get going. It's my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast someone with whom I don't think I've physically been in the same room to record for 54 episodes. And if you're playing along at home, this is our 54th episode. Lauren Ruffin, welcome back to the podcast. Tim. Ah, it's so great to be in the same space. I know. Well, we haven't been in the same space in two years. That's true. Yeah. Two years, two months. So much has happened. It's so great to see you in 3D. It is. You're still tall. I'm still short. You've changed your hairstyle. I have so much less hair. You have the same amount of hair, which for a white guy is a blessing. (laughs) (laughs) But I got to see your like new sneakers. They're amazing. They're really great. I'm wearing some dope Converse's right now. Things you miss when you're on Zoom. You just don't get to see the footwear. We should just start putting up on the desk. Like, what are you wearing today on those feet? (laughs) (laughs) A split screen. Totally. I'm like really excited to talk to you about this series. This has been a long time coming. This has been a long time brewing. It's really exciting that it's coming together and the episodes are starting to drop this week. You and I have long said that any sophisticated leader needs to have an understanding of anti-racism. So you went out into the wild and managed to find 12 white guys who like are kind of figuring it out and like at least being thoughtful about it, right? Yeah. It was really interesting to talk to 12 white guys who are each approaching this in different ways, but they're doing the personal work first. And then, like, what does this mean? Is it through an anti-racism lens? Is it through a justice lens? And what does this mean for them as white guys showing up in their organizations? Some of the organizations these guys have founded and saying, like, whoa, we need to reimagine. We need to rethink our policies, our practices, or the language that we use. And sitting with them in that struggle, like, what's worked, what's not? Where are they still challenged? The common theme was white guys. But like really different backgrounds and work. I mean, they're small nonprofits, large B corporations, handful of employees, lots of employees. So a lot of different ways that people are showing up and also willing to talk about it on the record. I was wondering when you first told me about this, and I do want to ask you how you came up with this idea. But when you first told me about it, I was like, I don't know if you're going to be able to find very many white guys who, even if they're doing the work, will talk about it openly because folks are so afraid to say like, hey, this isn't perfect. Or I thought you would get a whole lot of like, everything's hunky-dory. So I'm glad that these conversations were so robust. But like, let's take it back. It's a little bit of a crazy idea, like diving headfirst off of like Mount Kilimanjaro. (laughs) I'm afraid of heights. So it's like literally like I would be terrified to do to have these conversations, I think. Well, maybe not terrified, but I am curious about the impetus. Several years ago, unbeknownst to me at the time, you sent in an application for me to attend the Conscious Capitalism CEO Summit. And I was fortunate enough to be able to go. And it was that moment where I'm sitting in a room with 200 mainly white people, 
largely of men. And I was listening to panel after panel of people talking about like doing good by being good and how to create an organization where people can thrive. I'm like, wow, there's just a lot of white people and a lot of (laughs) white guys in particular on these panels. And that was problematic in this space because there was a lot of white people who weren't recognizing their privilege when they talk about like, you know, the challenges I have of maintaining two country club memberships and, you know, making $2.5 million. (laughs) And like, how much golf can I fit in today? And and I'm sitting there and after like two days, it really started to get to me. And I was taking notes. I'm sitting with this tension of being in these spaces while coming from our organization where we are engaged in how racism and oppression is baked into the DNA of the organization. Mm -hmm. What do we do about it? And how as white people do we show up or not show up in the work? And I sat on my notes for, I don't know, it was like eight months or so before I wrote the piece around why anti-racism work is a core leadership competency Mm -hmm. for, in particular, white men to be engaged in. But I sat with like, you know, what panel would I like to hear an all-white guy group talk about? Mm. Like, what would be a useful thing? The Grateful Dead. (laughs) Besides the Grateful Dead, (laughs) I would really appreciate hearing an all-white male panel talk about their journey toward understanding how racism and oppression is baked into the organizations that they mm-hmm. run. And that sort of was the, the impetus for this, where like, could I get enough white guys together to talk about something like, I've never seen a panel of just white people, let alone white guys who are in these positions, break it down for like, yeah, I have this privilege, I hold this power, and this is how I'm trying to change my organization. And so it was brewing what for like three years? Yeah. And that's how this all started to come together. And then I just started asking white guys, and no one turned me down. I remember you came back from that conference pretty fired up. I was like, yes, we've radicalized him. <laughs> like, that was the moment I was like, yeah, he's come over to our side. We were talking about the thing, but we weren't talking about mm-hmm. the thing. And these were organizations, and these are people who were really well-meaning, wanted to create organizations where people can thrive, and were just missing a giant piece of the equation, yeah. and didn't know they were missing it. These are organizations I had studied, organizations I visited about like, how do you actually create great places to work? I think on the second day, at the end of the day, they're like, let's talk about reflections on, on the day. I stood up, I about threw up, seriously, I about threw up because <laughs> there's like founder of Whole Foods and founder of yeah. container stores, like people that like everyone knows in the room and I'm, no one knows me. I know you. Except for Lauren, yeah, yeah. who I was slacking with at the time. Yeah. I stood up and I said something to the effect that I don't think this conscious capitalism movement is going to be effective unless it wrestles with its role in perpetuating racism and uh-huh. oppression. And then I sat down and I texted you and I said something like, I don't think anyone's going to eat dinner with me tonight. <laughs> yeah, that is what you said. <laughs> and they just move on to the next person. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know what just happened there. Yeah. But I walk out of the space into like the lobby and I'm just standing there by myself. This person comes up to me and says something to the effect of, like, I really appreciated what you said. And it turned out to be Jay Cohen Gilbert, uh. who founded B Lab, um, before that founded um, And One. That was a connection that we made. And then we talked a little bit afterwards, but it sort of went dormant. And then in May 2020, after George Floyd's murder, Jay and some of his colleagues in the B Corp community emailed a bunch of white guys and said, let's get together to talk about this, to process this. And that was the start of White Men for Racial Justice. And then Jay, because of that connection at Conscious Capitalism, reached out to me. And then that led to this whole community of other white guys who are actually engaged in the work and who understand the power and privilege that they hold in their organization. That's really dope. So I'm curious, you've got this network now, you're tapping the network for this series. 
What's the through line? A lot of the guys talk about they're in the work, they're wrestling with the work, they're making mistakes, nothing's perfect. A lot of them were pointing out, look, our organization is engaged in this, but this is not, we're not perfect. We're trying stuff out here. Some of it's not working. Some of it's accidentally working. I mean, I was talking to an organization who uses inclusive hiring, which preceded their work. They would have defined their work that they're doing around belonging. But it was, it was a sort of policy and practice that happened beforehand that now it's like, oh, actually, that aligns with anti-racism work accidentally. Right. And so reframing, like, how can we take this deeper? It's a lot of like, it's not perfect. Also, I'm wrestling with all the stuff that I'm now realizing has happened Mm -hmm. as a white guy in these rooms and how I'm showing up. So I think a lot of humility and a lot of vulnerability that people were showing in the work that they're doing, which is why, again, like this is all on the record. I mean, I told them clean up the interviews for like filler words and stuff, but more or less like what what they said, it was going to get published. Yeah. One person said something like, I would be more comfortable if we were just chatting over a beer, but I thought, also, this is part of the work. This series is for other white guys in similar roles, and part of being on this journey is to sort of share what's working and what's not. I've been thinking a lot about truth and reconciliation and apology. Did anyone talk about feeling like they needed to apologize to staff, organization, colleagues, or do you think they sort of were able to move through getting into the work? Like, did they feel like they'd done, they'd actively done harm to the point where they needed to apologize anywhere? I don't know if anyone in the interviews talked about that, but certainly these guys in this in the interview series, we've talked about that in other settings, mm-hmm. where as you're wrestling with it, you know, feelings of shame. Oh, yeah. All of a sudden, I'm realizing the stuff that I had no idea, and then I'm looking back at decisions I made, and that actually inf- inflicted harm. Mm-hmm. And maybe those people don't work with me anymore. Or how do I show up the next time? And so that was working through that. It's been interesting to be a part of this white men for racial justice community because it meets every Tuesday at like 8 p.m. Eastern Mm -hmm. time. So it's a, a weekly thing. And since I started regularly attending about a year or so ago, we've introduced two other cohorts, which has been an interesting dynamic to bring in new guys into it. Oh, yeah. How you prepare that group to then enter the other group that's been together and really digging into the work. They use the Seeing White podcast series. That's the frame that we, we've been using with that group. But you can see people coming in and like wrestling with like, I'm here because my grandchild is black mm-hmm. and I'm a white guy and I need to show up for them. Or something happened in our company and I need a space to talk about this with other white guys because even if we have caucusing at work, you know, there's power yeah, dynamics. There's power dynamics, yeah. You're, you're always showing up as the CEO in any meeting, even if it's a caucus. So, so some of that got captured in the interviews. It's more like the longer themes that sort of come up again and again, and how can you process that, and how can you get beyond the shame that you might feel, and really, what do you do about it in a way that's not what typical white guys do? It's like, all right, let's fix this thing. Yeah. But how do you sit with this discomfort? and just learn from it. Man, that's, that's a lot. Hey everyone, it's Tim. I want to take a quick break from our conversation to share some really exciting news with you. We spend a lot of time on this podcast discussing how to create inclusive, equitable, thriving anti-racist workplaces. About a year ago, my colleagues Courtney Harge and Nicola Carpenter even taught a course about an important piece of this work, race-based caucusing. And here's the exciting part. 
we just released an online version of that popular course. If you're listening to this podcast and wondering, how do you actually create an anti-racist workplace? This course is for you. If you're curious about what race-based caucusing in the workplace is, what it isn't, how to get it started, how to keep it going, this course is for you. Courtney and Nicola share their insights from having done this work together for years. They share their templates, their practical strategies, and actionable advice to help you succeed in implementing this in your workplace. Whether you're an HR professional or a team leader, consultant or educator, CEO, or really any role in the organization who is ready to invest time and energy into creating a more inclusive and understanding workplace, join the course and learn how this tool can be a part of the change towards more equitable, thriving futures. Head over to bit.ly backslash caucus course to check it out now. And be sure to use the code caucus50 at checkout for $50 off the price. Now let's get back to the conversation. I'm curious about the cohort model. Do they remain with the sort of founding cohort or do they stay there for a while and then split out on their own? Or how are y'all thinking about this? In Jay Cohn Gilbert's interview, he talks about how this all came to be. He's like that first Zoom call, we had 100 people and he's like, his, my phone was blowing up with text messages I can't get in because he didn't realize he had the Zoom, call, Zoom <laughs> account that had to cap. Yeah. And so all these white guys wa- wanted to get in there. He talks about, all right, let's, it seems like there's some interest. Let's gather in two weeks. And between now and then, let's all listen to the Seeing White podcast. Meanwhile, I'll, I'll upgrade my Zoom account. Yeah, meanwhile, I'll work on the Zoom account. You listen to Seeing White. And he said it just evolved organically where like, it was just white guys who said, yeah, let's show up again and let's show up again. And so by the time I joined, there's some rigorous curriculum development. Uh-huh. There are a number of people who are in education. They built out this curriculum that really guides the conversation, the weekly conversation. The new cohort that comes in, they go through an eight-week introductory where you work through the Seeing White podcast and then are introduced to the group. And then they just become members of the group. Oh, cool. And then once you've gone through this eight-week series, some people opt out. Yeah. They're like, yeah, that was interesting. What I needed. yeah. And, and then others sign up for the thing. And you can see it ebbs and it flows. Mm-hmm. Every Tuesday, it's like 40 to 50 white guys who are showing up. There's paid equity advisors. So there's usually two black equity advisors who hold the group accountable. They show up once a month to talk about what's going on, how white guys should be showing up, and to deepen that learning. That's really awesome. I'm really excited to listen to the rest of the series. It's been fun to re-listen to it after recording it. Yeah. So both the themes and then just some really interesting things that came out of it. Like I was interviewing Ron Carucci and he talked about this exercise he uses when he works with groups where if you're talking about racism, before you even get into the conversation, you write the 20 or 30 words that you can't say Uh in the conversation. So you can't say white fragility. You can't say white privilege. And so in the conversation, if you want to refer to white fragility or white privilege, you have to actually say the behavior. You have to explain what it is. Yeah. And he said it's just a disarming thing because people toss around these terms, critical race theory, and yeah. you don't really understand what that means, but it might be triggering for people. Yeah. And to really sort of, what are we talking about here? How do we really understand what, what everyone's saying? So there's little things like that that came up in the conversations. John Orr was really taking apart equity, equality, and justice to explain like inputs and outputs and systems and how that works. So I think every one of the guys has a different take that I found really helpful. And yeah. like, how do you 
What are different angles and lenses that you can use to think about the work? And as a resource for other white guys, it's going to be unique. What mix works for me right now to help me go deeper in my understanding? That's really dope. And the importance of language, right? Like just being intentional about how you use words. And it can be really powerful to actually, instead of sort of looping things up into white fragility, you can say like, you know, this person decided to detach from the conversation and essentially got up and walked out of the room. Yeah. You know, like... <laughs> yeah. Exactly. What is yeah. that thing? They took the thing that I said and said that they no longer wanted to engage with the work, but that's not what I was actually asking. It's a longhand. You know, we do use shorthand too often. That's powerful. We did that with some of our interview questions. We used to say, describe diversity without using the word different. It was really interesting to take that lens and J. Cohen Gilbert shared an anecdote where he was in a room and someone was presenting to a bunch of white guys and was talking about earned versus unearned privilege. He said it was disarming in a way. All of a sudden, this group of white guys, he said, you can see that like the shoulders drop. There's multiple types of privilege. Yeah. And so rather than talking about white privilege, it's like, did you earn this or is this unearned? And you're just benefiting. You're just benefiting from it. Yeah. Those are some of the things that my hope is that as other white guys are listening to this series, they can find that, oh, aha, or it just really engages them in a different way. I'm excited for this to start rolling out and really excited that we had this chance to sit together in the same room Oh my room goodness. And talk. I haven't been this happy to see somebody since, I can't even remember, maybe since I saw Beyonce on tour. Like you're my Beyonce, Tim. I thought it was Celine Dion. I do love Celine. But Beyonce was like, at that particular point in time in my life, which was a very long time ago, I was really into it. I haven't seen Celine yet because I think I'm going to be like one of those Michael Jackson fans who cries and faints. And I don't want to be on camera. Like I don't want anyone to see it. <laughs> I'm really nervous about sleep. <laughs> you know, people get all sweaty and then they just yeah. faint. Yeah, I yeah. think that's going to be me. I always feel so bad for those people in those old grainy videos. <laughs> I kept my cool with Beyonce mostly. I look forward to debriefing your Celine Dion concert going experience. Well, if it goes well, you'll hear about it. If not, you'll never know I was there. <laughs> I mean, I do feel like one thing I, I would love to be able to do is get you a private audience. If you and Celine could just my like, heart sit just down. skipped a beat. Like I. I this is one person listening here heard me breathe deeply into the microphone. <laughs> well, on that note, listen to the series. It's going to be great. Lauren, as always. Yeah, it's good to be back together. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or a five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>